Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome. We'll get started. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome to all of you coming in for the first time. Anybody at home joining on Zoom for the first time? Welcome to you. Although it says live on YouTube, it's not actually live. We record it and post it later. Uh, I don't know why it says live, but it says that. Um, Against the Stream is a meditation center, Buddhist meditation center, and a place to... Uh, practice meditation, learn about Buddhist teachings, and to connect with a community, to be able to have a, a home for our spiritual community, our, our what we call Sangha. And one of the things that I've found over the years of meditation groups is that it's kind of hard to, maybe you know a couple people that you come with, but it's hard to get to know other meditators, other Buddhists in meditation groups, because like you come and you meditate in silence usually, and then may listen to a talk, ask a question or two perhaps. Um, so one of the ways that I've been for many years trying to get the community, people who show up to meet each other, to connect, to make, it, it's considered one of the refuges, one of the core teachings of the Buddha is to associate with other practitioners, other meditators, to make friends, to have support, to challenge each other and encourage each other and resolve conflicts with each other with other people who are also trying to be mindful trying to be kind trying to be forgiving and compassionate that we all have that common intention not that uh, any of us are all that good at it but we're all trying and the importance of uh, making friendships with people who are trying so um, before we begin the meditation, just introduce yourself to some of the people in the room and at home. I'll throw you into some breakout groups and just introduce yourself to some of the people. Random. Big, I mean, I like the big one because I like to be up high and forward a little bit. And you guys are welcome to have the cushions back there or, or up here, other way. Yeah. 
Hey, welcome. How's it going? Good to see you. Welcome, everybody. It is my hope that if this is the right community for you, if you resonate and um, that you make it a regular part of like that you show up, whether you feel like it or not, whether you feel like you need it or not. And Part of that, like I was recently, I feel, I feel like a lot of what happens is like communities are so transient and, um, you know, people come and go and often people come to meditation when they're suffering a lot or they're, you know, really they're in a period of seeking or, and they come for a little bit and then the suffering lessens a little bit of the desperation, the dissatisfaction. And they're like, I'm good. I don't want to keep meditating. Hurts my ass, <laughs> makes my knees sore. I have to sit with my loud mind. Uh, and then they, we don't keep returning and, or, you know, people um, give up, you know, there's a, a so it's a difficult process, this process of awakening, this process of healing of so many of our community of recovering. It's a, uh, it's quite hard work. And so I'm, I'm not exactly sure why um, uh, communities are so transient and, you know, like I've been teaching this Monday night class for um, close to 20 years. 
and in Los Angeles for 16 years, every Monday I've showed up almost every Monday. <laughs> Some Mondays I've not been here because I'm on the road or something like that, but for 16 years here and before here in New York for a couple of years in San Francisco for many years before that, just showing up and, and the hundreds of people, the thousands of people who've come through and like 10% stay something like that, like such a small percentage of the people that start a practice, follow through on the practice. And maybe some of it is like people like got what they needed. They got the instructions, they got the practice, they got the, and then they're like, yeah, I'm not really suffering anymore. So I don't need to go. I heard all of those lectures already. I know what the Buddha taught. Um, those of you who've been coming for a long time, you start to go like, yeah, it's pretty repetitive kind of giving the same talk over and over and over because Buddhism is pretty simple. And so we're just talking about it every week of all boils down to the importance of non-attachment and compassion. And, and, you know, you've heard it all. I was a couple of weeks ago, I might've said this last week. I hope I didn't, but a couple of weeks ago, I think I did actually say this last week, but I'm going to say it again. Um, it was with a couple of old teachers of mine for 30 years, these two, monks that I've been studying with for 30 years. And at one point they brought up this example of a fully enlightened monk in the time of the Buddha who said, I'm not gonna go to the Sangha. I'm not gonna go to the meeting. I'm not showing up to Monday night. He said, because, he said, he said, because I'm enlightened. He said, I don't need to go anymore because I've, I've become fully enlightened. And so, you know, I used to go because I was seeking enlightenment because I, need, you know, I needed the reminder, but now I'm good. So I'm not going to show up. And the Buddha went and kind of, um, you know, confronted him and said, uh, it's your duty to show up whether you're suffering or not suffering. It's your duty to show up for the community. Be an example to everyone else uh, that, even, that this shit works and that you keep coming and, and that you're here for the community. You're not here to learn. You're here to be of service. You're here to support everyone else in the room. Some, some of us, like when you're new, you're here to learn. You're here like, I need some tools, I need some techniques. And then at some point you're like, no, I kind of know this stuff. I'm just here to practice it. I'm here to, to be with the community. It's like that um, in recovery, there's that, I don't think it's a traditional thing, but kind of one of those things that, I, that gets said, um, the person says, well, like, how long do I have to go to these recovery meetings? Do I, you know, how long? I don't really like it. How long do I have to go? And then the sponsor, whomever, some wise elder says, you have to keep going until you want to go. And then once you want to go, you're good because you'll keep going and you'll show up. And then if you ever don't want you, you have to keep showing up for each other. And it's not, uh, it's not just to learn. You know, people think like, oh, well, there's an instructions and there's a lecture. So I go there to learn. I hope that the Sangha becomes much more than that to most of you, much more than a place I go to learn, but a place I go to connect with my friends on this path, the community that I'm engaging in, um, not just because I wanna get inspired or educated or because I need some help, but I just show up because it's what I do. I show up and connect with the community to be part of this thing. So for what it's worth, I just was, was thinking about that. Um, we'll have a, about a 30 minute meditation. 
and um, find a way to sit that's upright and relax. Find a posture that feels, you want to arrange your body in an upright way that feels sustainable. Feels like I can sit still in this posture. So if you're on the chair, make sure your feet are flat on the ground. If you're on the cushion, make sure your body's upright, but also relaxed. You want to find that posture that's comfortable, but not so comfortable you're going to fall asleep. That's upright, but not so rigid that you feel tense or stressed about it. As you allow your eyes to close, try to soften any tension that your body's holding, unnecessary tension. Try to imagine the skeleton, the vertebrae, the ribs, uh, pelvis, arms and legs stacked and resting in this upright position. And all of the meat of the body, the muscles, tendons, relaxed around the skeleton, hanging loosely. Relaxing the jaw and the shoulders and the belly. Establishing mindfulness, the intentional action of paying attention, of bringing awareness to your present time experience. Mindfulness of your body sitting, of the sense doors of sound, smell, taste. Mindfulness of all of the Sensory input, it's happening right now. You're hearing, you're feeling, smelling, tasting, seeing. Present time awareness of any emotions that may be present and levels of joy or sorrow, anxiousness, excitement, fear, regret, whatever you're heart and mind are feeling in this moment without any judgment, non-judgmental awareness of our present time experience. And in order to concentrate and gather the attention. We focus on the sensations that the breath creates. The Buddha's initial meditation instruction was breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Bring mindfulness to the breath, to the sensations that the breath creates. And in this way, for now, we'll let everything else be in the background. The sounds, the other sensations, the thoughts that are coming and going through your mind, 
not trying to stop the thoughts or quiet the mind. Just try to pay attention to your breath. Let the mind do whatever it wants in the background. Let the sound just be part of your mindfulness, hearing, feeling the breath. Continually returning to the breath, but in a friendly way with an attitude of acceptance and patience. Of course, the attention gets drawn back into thinking naturally. And it takes some effort to come back to the body, sitting, feeling, present time, awareness of the breath.
Feel the breath, know that you're breathing in and out and investigate the impermanent nature of each breath, the beginning, middle, end. The Buddha said that even just this first foundation awareness of the body, breathing could reveal the whole Dharma, the whole truth. The truth of impermanence, everything that arises, passes. The unreliable or unsatisfactory nature of all conditioned phenomena, the breath itself. Showing us this truth. And the impersonal, not self reality of the breath breathing itself, the body breathes all by itself. Perhaps we have the illusion of controlling the breath. The body just breathes an awareness receives the breath.
if you're new to the practice, just keep using the breath as the primary focus. If you've been practicing for some time, my encouragement is after the first 10 or 15 minutes of breath awareness to expand your awareness to your whole being, include the sounds, include the emotions and the thoughts that are here, the other sensations in the body. Becoming aware of not just what's arising in the mind or the body in this moment, but the feeling tone, what is being experienced as pleasant. Seeing more clearly our relationship to the pleasant experiences, the liking, the clinging, the craving. Becoming aware of the unpleasant experiences, the discomfort in the body or difficult emotions or thoughts that are here. Knowing it is unpleasant and the willingness to be present, tolerant, accepting of our own pain, both physical and emotional.
Mindfulness awakens us to the impermanent nature of both pleasure and pain. The unreliable or unsatisfactory nature of both pleasure and pain. And the impersonal nature of this body that hates pain, loves pleasure, and this mind instinctually driven to craving for pleasure and aversion to pain. Not your fault. The more we are mindful and observe and investigate, we see these truths directly.
allow any unpleasant experiences to be the object of your awareness, investigate, turn towards rather than run from, learn to tolerate, learn to have compassion by observing, by investigating, by allowing yourself to feel the physical pain, the emotional pain, Or if your experience is quite pleasant, turn towards that. Just as the breath can teach us about impermanence, likewise with all sensation and emotion, thoughts arising and passing, constantly changing.
this clock hasn't been changed yet. I looked down, I was like, damn, that was a long meditation. It's 9 15. I just got back from. Uh, New Mexico, where I was teaching a refuge recovery silent meditation retreat for the last, um, it was just a three-day retreat, but I was out there for about a week, and um, I had some reflections about about my trip, which maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get into, but um, I actually don't really have much of a topic for tonight. I, don't, I didn't really, I wasn't super inspired by anything in particular to use as a, a Dharma talk. So I thought maybe I'd just leave it up to you what we talk about tonight. So you can reflect on, um, you know, your experience of meditation, your understanding of Buddhism, of any um, questions you have about what the Buddha taught or I mean, I will throw out this, you know, the, the promise here, the teaching of the Buddha is that we can end all of the suffering in our lives through our own effort. I mean, that's the core, it's the third noble truth that actually you can become free from suffering in this lifetime, not some future incarnation or not some afterlife or, but here and now in this life, if you're willing to practice renunciation, stop doing some of the shit that's causing you suffering. If you're willing to stop doing that and to train your mind to meditate and to learn to concentrate and be mindful, learn to have compassion and forgiveness, non-attachment. If you're willing to do the work, this is the Buddha's path. This is the, the Buddha's teaching is that you can do this in this lifetime. You can, you can get free. Um, so with that context <laughs> of uh, whatever you're suffering about, ultimately, it's possible to not suffer about it. Not necessarily right now. I mean, the reality is we might all be a little bit stuck in this moment, but you don't have to stay stuck if you're willing to let go of some things that you're addicted to. And not just the drugs and booze and sugar, but addicted to the mind, addicted to the self, addicted to the craving and aversion and, and obeying our minds. If you're willing to get free, uh, you can, and if you're willing to do the work. So with that you know, larger context, I have a couple of questions online, uh, but also here in the room, think about what your questions are. Declan, go ahead. I was to one of the podcasts in the past that you did on um, self-compassion or on the topic of compassion. And you mentioned this amazing definition of mercy. As I have the ability to make things worse. And, I, and just like we can start there by having mercy on ourselves. Like realizing we can make it worse if we don't. And that station from self-hate to mercy on the way to compassion. And just hearing that helped me so much. 
but I still struggle with like the the definition for compassion or self-compassion. Find that or like moving from mercy more compassion. Mercy working on has been helping. Any thoughts on that? Sure. Um so Declan's reminding, I don't know how well you could hear him, it was breaking up a little bit, but he, he was reminding that um, in a talk that I gave, I think a couple of weeks ago, that I, I was talking about that uh, we're all our default on some level is aversion to pain, that we're just born with a survival instinct that you hate pain. And how much of your suffering comes out of aversion, trying to control, avoid, um, suppress, get angry about unpleasant experiences in your life. And that ultimately the Buddha's teaching of liberation is compassion. If you can learn how to have compassion, if we can learn how to have compassion for our pain rather than hatred, then like a whole bunch, I, I don't know, 40%, 50%, I don't know what it is in your life, but a whole bunch of your suffering will end if you learn to meet your pain with compassion. But it's so hard because he's, you know, there's this, I feel like there's this, um, you know, there are two sides of the spectrum and aversion is totally normal. And everyone like, look at, I don't know how many of you are parents, but if you have a baby, uh, they just hate pain. Nobody has to like, you're not, that might be, it might be your kid right here. <laughs> Uh, okay let, let me let me continue the lecture please um that we're, we're born in aversion that is just where we land and then to get to compassion is like it's not a just a choice it's not like i'm just gonna decide to be compassionate we have to train and it's counter to our survival instincts like there's nothing in our survival instinct that needs to be compassionate towards our own pain. Does this make sense? So we're just where the default is, I fucking hate pain and I'm gonna do all I can my whole life to avoid it. Because if I don't, it will kill me on some level or another. So there, you know, and Declan's reminding that I said, okay, we need to get to compassion, but how do we get there and the first thing we do is we learn how to tolerate pain, stop running. And even just what you're doing tonight, 30 minutes of just sitting here, it's a little uncomfortable, right? Some, no, totally comfortable the whole time. Some of you are weirdos and you're like, no, I just loved it. Um, but usually if you, you know, your body is still for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, there's some aches. You look at your mind, maybe your mind does some unpleasant things, some judgments, some comparing, some craving. There's some unpleasantness that's just unavoidable. But learning to tolerate it, learning to sit with it, like we do every Monday, we come together, we meditate, we hang out together for an hour and a half. I was um, on this retreat, there's 30 people on the retreat, and I think about half of them were new, about 15 people doing their first silent meditation retreat. And most of those people on their first silent meditation retreat were in like their first year of recovery. Some of them just like a few months into recovery. And uh, just getting sober is really hard. 
But then getting sober and staying sober and sitting with yourself in silence for three days, no meetings, no sponsor to call, no, just sitting. And we're doing 45, we're doing eight meditations a day. Some of them are 45 minutes, some of them are 30 minutes. We're doing what we just did eight times a day from 7 a.m. till 9 p.m. And I am certain that every single person that did that retreat, you know, their meter of aversion and the kind of went a little bit more towards, whoa, I learned tolerance. I learned that I could actually tolerate discomfort, even if I hated it most of the time. I learned that I could hate something and not run from it. I learned that I could hate something and not drink about it. I learned that I could sit here and be uncomfortable and tolerate it and be in some level of acceptance. So Declan was asking about mercy, because I think that there's aversion, mercy is in the middle, compassion is over here. And um, the more we practice mindfulness, the more we start to pay attention, we see how much power we have. We don't have much control over um, whether or not we experience pain. You just have a body, you're gonna experience pain. You have some influence of like not intentionally doing painful things, but even you know, in a normal avoidance of painful things, be all these unpleasant sounds and smells and tastes. And, you know, you're sitting here meditating and someone farts and it's just unpleasant, you know, or you're stuck in traffic and it's just unpleasant or you injure yourself and it's just unpleasant and it's just unavoidable. Pain is, is not an option. It's not optional. It's unavoidable. And uh, the more we see, oh, well, if I learn to tolerate it, then I don't suffer so much about it. But as soon as I kick into that natural, habitual, reactive tendency of aversion, I turn pain into suffering. Does this make sense? So I started with the Buddha saying, in this lifetime, you can end suffering. You can learn to not suffer in this lifetime. He nowhere says you can learn to not have any pain. So in order for the truth of nirvana, the end of suffering to be true, we have to separate the difference between pain and our relationship to pain. Pain in itself is just an unpleasant sensation. It's just an unpleasant emotion. It's just a feeling that is impermanent, that is unpleasant. When we hate it, when we judge it, when we fear it, when we resent it, when we try to avoid it and resist it, we create levels and levels of suffering on top of the pain. So the definition of mercy is to not cause harm in a situation where you have power to cause harm. To be merciful is to say, like, I could really hurt myself right now by hating this pain in my knee. I could make it so, like my, my knee's already hurting and I've got the power to turn it into suffering by hating it. Or I have the power to accept it, to forgive it, to learn to care about it, to end suffering. So the merciful action is I'm not gonna make it worse. I'm not gonna cause myself or anyone else, this is both internal and external, 
I'm not going to hurt you. You know, you think of that theistic image of God. God is merciful. God could kick your ass. He could smite you. God's merciful, so he's not going to kick your ass right now because he's merciful. But maybe later he might be wrathful, might feel like kicking your ass. But God is merciful. So God is not going to harm you, even though God could harm you. Right? God is merciful. Buddhism, not so theistic, just says, no, this is in you. You have the power to make things worse. Or you can be merciful with yourself. You can choose to not harm yourself. So Declan's actual question is around um, how do we get there? How do we get to compassion? Tolerance, yes. Mercy, not making it worse. But how do we keep moving the dial to I care about my pain? Not just I don't make it worse, but actually I can bring friendliness, tenderness, warmth, love, Compassion to my own pain. And it, on some level, it happens naturally. The Buddha said it was mindfulness itself, just by bringing awareness into the body, first foundation, bringing awareness to the pain, the pleasure, the neutrality, bringing awareness to the mind that has both pleasant and unpleasant thoughts, the heart that experiences both pleasant and unpleasant emotions. He said, by just paying attention, if you really turn towards and see the habitual aversive tendency and stop uh, following that inclination, that, that um, instinctual drive and just sit with it and observe it, that compassion will arise all by itself, that there's a sort of natural process of compassion that will come. If you continuously turn towards it with interest, with a willingness to be in pain and not run from it. There's a Buddhist monk that I like, um, and I was hanging out with him a few years ago, and he said, in his experience, I forget how many years he was in, a few years into robes, um, he said the more he did mindfulness and just sat there and observed what we call Vipassana insight meditation, he said, and I was investigating the impermanent and the impersonal and the unreliable sensations in my heart and mind and body. He said, it felt to me like naturally there was this like curtain covering my heart. Like there was something blocking my compassion. There was something blocking my loving kindness, something blocking. There was some armoring or some wall that had been built up. He said to him, it felt like a curtain was covering the heart. He said, and through mindfulness, just turning towards his pain, turning towards the moment, he says, as though the curtain was drawn back. And that it kind of, rather than I created compassion, I paid attention to pain, learned to tolerate it, learned to be merciful, not make it worse. And this curtain was that revealed a naturally compassionate heart. So this is part of the perspective, Declan, is that compassion is part of your true nature, part of your Buddha nature. Uh, it's, it's in each one of us, but it's buried underneath our survival instinct of hating pain, right? So we're born in this nervous system that hates pain, but with this core nature of being loving and compassionate. 
But all of the I hate pain gets in the way and covers and obscures and doesn't allow us to access that part of us that cares about pain rather than hates it. So in some level, what I'm saying is if you keep meditating, it'll happen all by itself. If you keep sitting with your pain and turning towards it and investigating it, it will happen. That curtain will get drawn back. Whatever is blocking your natural compassion will be removed, will, will be uh, you know, not so much of a hindrance to, because uh, the potential for compassion is in all of us. Access to compassion is in very few of us to be true, you know, the reality is. Not very many of us are very good at being compassionate towards their own pain. And maybe you're very good at being compassionate towards other people's pain. It's a bit easier. But this Buddha's teaching is uh, in order to really be free from suffering, it has to be both inside and outside of both your own pain as well as the pain of others. And that if you just care about everybody else and not yourself so much, we have a recovery program for you too. It's not compassion, it's codependency, it's enabling, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not knowing how to love yourself if you're really good at everyone else but yourself. And so, so much of, of this practice is from the inside out compassion for all beings, starting with this being right here in your skin, in your bones, in your mind, in your heart. But not so self-centered that it's just about you. All beings worthy of compassion, but start with you. Thank you. Welcome. Was there a hand in the room? Zero, yeah, please. Um, so the first time I came, you, know, you talked about those monks that like turn on everything. You wanted to find a balance of still being able to enjoy good food, enjoy you know, a, a pretty sunset, a pretty picture, you know, um, you know worldly pleasures. And, and that always really resonated with me. And, there's a certain drive within all of us to like want certain things. And you know, there's certain things in my life that I really want. But there's also like this, this kind of level where it's like, is this becoming obsession? You know, and like you know, we talked about like it's God's will or it's my will. You know, I'm just getting back to it, like a Buddhist framework. And I guess in your life. How have you found balance? You know, there's certain things that we, you know, a good job or a good relationship or good things, but sometimes you can kind of get so wrapped up in that where you're just kind of spinning the wheels. You know, um, I guess my question is, how do you how do you find balance or how do you find awareness within that where you're still moving towards certain things but not, you know, becoming obsessed or, or doing damage? yourself could you hear at home the question or should i repeat it i'll repeat it um 
how do we find the balance between wanting um, and when it becomes craving? And where's the, uh, you know, where's the health? How do we know, right? Where's the healthy balance? And, and when does it become obsession or suffering rather than just a, a and some of it to me is the question of, um, is it a healthy or wholesome desire versus unhealthy or um, un unwholesome in some ways? And then it, it also depends on like, is it a material desire? Is it a sensual desire? Is it a, um, or is it a spiritual desire? That there, there is, um, you know, even though the second noble truth is acknowledging that all of our suffering comes from craving, the repetitive craving for pleasure, the repetitive aversion to pain, that that's the cause of human suffering. But there's other places where the Buddha says, actually desire, if it's for wholesome things like awakening, if, you're, if you desire the truth, if you desire liberation, that's quite a good thing to want. It's, you know, like if you're gonna want anything, then want to be awake. So here's, I, here's what I think in my own life. I know you're asking me somewhat personally. On some level, I deeply feel like I deeply know that nothing is going to work. Even though my mind will tell me, you, like, if you get that, you'll be happy. But there, I, there's wisdom in me that isn't like, it's not going to work. If it's material, if it's relational, if whatever it is, success, whatever it is, like that understanding that there is no refuge, no true refuge in any success, in any material thing, in any relationship, that it's not going to be the solution it's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, it's un the, the three characteristics, if I can apply those to whatever I'm wanting, understanding that I want this impermanent thing. I want this thing that's ultimately not reliable. I want this thing that probably on a lot of levels will be unsatisfactory and you know, not, not the true source of happiness. So if you can bring that lens, that wisdom lens to whatever it is that you're wanting, then you might still get it. You might still seek it and work for it and you know whatever it is and say like, I really want, like for me, I, I'm a materialist. I like motorcycles, I like hot rods. I like, you know, I've got a garage full of toys. And I know that none of them are gonna make me happy. And they're all gonna break. And I'll probably kill myself on one of them one of these days, like not, really the source of happiness. Like, for sure, I know that. It doesn't stop me from being like, man, I've got three motorcycles, but Charlie would like a fourth. Knowing like there's no way it's going to satisfy me. There's no way it's going to actually bring happiness. Um, but it doesn't stop me from wanting. And then, you know, depending on your financial situation and stuff, and, you know, yeah, maybe I do need a brand new one. I don't know. So I hope that this frame that I'm trying to 
put is that it's not so much about what we want as how deluded are we about thinking that it's going to work. So there's this story, you've probably heard me tell it before, that uh, Ajahn Chah talks about, he gets confronted, he says, you know, his, when a student comes to him and says, you know, you're teaching us non-attachment, that nothing's going to work, nothing's worth clinging to, everything's impermanent. He said, but I've noticed, his student says to him, I've noticed that you have that glass, and you're always drinking from that one glass, and you're a renunciate, and, but you look attached to that glass. And Ajahn Chah says something like, you're right. Like, I, this is my favorite plastic cup. It's my favorite glass. Always, you know, uh, he says, but I know the nature of this is impermanent. I know it's going to break. And to me, I enjoy every moment with it because it's already broken in my mind. So if you can approach your relationships knowing that they're impermanent, rather than being so shocked when they end. So like, wait, this isn't supposed to happen. This was supposed to, they weren't supposed to change. They weren't supposed to die. They weren't supposed to cheat, whatever, you know, like that wasn't supposed to happen. Just like going into it going like, oh no, like everything's impermanent. Nothing is certain. Nothing is certain. Nothing is reliable except for our delusion of, I want this to be permanent. I want it to be reliable. I want it to be. So if we can go for, you know, the career, I don't know if you're like a material ambition, like I want to be a writer. Like, you know, I can remember like I was writing my first book thinking like, it's going to be so amazing to get published. And that delusion of like, this is going to be so cool. And then getting published and being like, didn't work. It wasn't that. I got criticized, people judged me, got some bad reviews. I thought this was going to be joyous. I was going to help so many people. People were like, that fucking guy, <laughs> punk rock Buddhist bullshit. Yeah, no, I, I'm, and yeah, a lot of praise too, which also maybe is even worse sometimes, the praise. And then I start thinking, oh man, I'm amazing. The more, more suffering in that inflation, sense of self. So I said in the meditation tonight, the breath itself will teach you everything's impermanent. The breath itself will teach you nothing is reliable, even the breath. It's not satisfactory, right? You have to keep breathing over and over. What if, you know, that's like every time I take a breath, I need another one. And then it's like I'm addicted to breathing. I can't get enough. No, 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 it doesn't satisfy. It's just, oh, that felt good. Now I need another one. That felt good. Now I need another one. And it's not that personal. The body just breathing all by itself. I think I, me, my breath, my career, my relationship, my toys, my stuff. I've got stuff. I want to keep my stuff. But you can't keep it. It's like the five daily reflections that the Buddha encouraged. He said, you know, every day, remember you're subject to sickness. 
you're subject to aging, you're subject to death. Remember impermanence, remember death, and then remember everything you want to keep, you don't get to keep. Loss. Eventually, impermanence is reality. You don't get to keep anything at death, right? Like somebody else gets your shit. You die, someone else gets your shit. And he said the only true possession, the only thing that we really have is our karma. And our karma is how we behave. We don't get to keep any of our stuff, but we totally own our actions, our karmic behavior in this lifetime. And so the career stuff, it's one of the reasons why right livelihood is on the path uh, as part of the eightfold path is that if you really want liberation, um, you got to make sure that you're heading in a direction with your livelihood, with your, uh, you know, relationship to material and money that's not causing negative karma for you. Because you're not going to get very far towards liberation if you're like, well, I was meditating a lot, but I was doing this job that was causing or I really wanted to, you know, get into this job or industry or whatever it was that um, was causing more harm, causing more negative karma. There's nothing wrong with wanting. Just know that it won't work. And then go for it. It's so good, actually. If I know it sounds a little weird, but if you can actually just be like, I know that getting this promotion is not going to really make me happy, but I'm still going to try to get the promotion. I know that having a lot more money or even a little bit more or a lot more money isn't going to really make me happy. I know it's a delusion that my mind says, hey, if you had this much financial security, you'd be stoked. The studies show and the anecdotal uh, you know, evidence is in, it doesn't work. It doesn't stop our minds from saying, but it would work for me, I'm different. I know those people that win the lottery and don't know how to deal with their hundreds of millions don't, you know, but I'd be good at it. I'd be super good at being filthy rich. <laughs> and, you know, right, everybody's mind probably says that on one level or another. So as long as you don't believe your mind, go for it. Like work hard for those goals. You know, if you want to be married, date, <laughs> right? You want to be in a healthy long-term relationship, practice relating, go on the dates, meet the people, show up with integrity, you know, like work for that. Uh, is marriage going to make you happy? No way. <laughs> is it better than being lonely and uh, most people would say, yes, if you're in a healthy long-term relationship, whether it's a marriage or not, like, yeah, it's not like the source of happiness, but that companionship and it's good to have a, a good, healthy, long-term connection. Did it make me happy the way that I thought it would when I was single? No. 
you know, I, mean, I don't know if there, maybe there's some very happily married people here that are like, no, it's amazing all the time. <laughs> and maybe that's true for some people, but, and I'm a skeptic, um, but that seems pretty rare. So like more realistic to say, probably not, but I'm still going to go for a relationship and see how that goes. And the healing that's in relationship, it's not going to be joy all of the time, but it'll probably be a lot of, uh, healing to be that intimate and connected and learn how to fight. That's a great thing to do. Just free ourselves from the delusion of this is going to be the source of my happiness. Rachel, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, this is kind of specific, uh, but it's something I've thought about since I read your first book years ago. Um, you're the, you wrote in Dharma Punks about the night that before you were supposed to, you thought you were going to go to prison and you had a phone call with your dad and he invited you to sit. And your dad was like, he was a pretty famous Buddhist guy, right? Like a Buddhist scholar or something. I wondered because I'm going through some similar incidents over COVID with my 18 year old. I wonder, did your dad ever talk about that? Like how he applied his practice and maybe even that one conversation, um, you know, cause you've got your parental instincts going bananas in situations like that, but then you've got your practice and you're thinking about non-attachment, but you're also like your hind brain is like protect the young, you know, like, did he ever talk? To, did he ever say what that was like for him? I've I've always wondered that, and that might be a whole other like whole other session. But thank you. Um, yeah, you're welcome. I'm I'm happy to reflect on that and that scenario with my father and my because uh, I did talk to him a bit about that. And um, that, that was what I was saying at the beginning. I just got back from New Mexico. I actually hadn't been to Taos, New Mexico, um, where I partially grew up uh, for five years since my father died five years ago. So being there uh, this last week, lots of memories, lots of reflections on my relationship with my dead father, lots of, you know, kind of memories about the teenage drug addiction, crime and violence and trauma that I experienced in Taos, New Mexico in the 1980s, early 80s, late 70s. And um, so here's a couple things, Rachel. One, after I got, after my dad taught me meditation and I got sober and I started doing okay. I was locked up for about nine months and I got out and I was going to junior college and I was meditating. And, and at some point I, maybe even, it was maybe even a bit later, um, but at some point I kind of confronted my dad and I was like, I was a 15 year old drug addict and you knew it and you emancipated me. And I said, dad, I don't want to go to school anymore. I want to hit the street. And you said, and you said, go for it. I was like, dad, what the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> I almost died. I got strung out. I was shooting dope. I was smoking crack. I was, I committed three felonies. Like I was locked up. I was, 
And then you taught me meditation when I thought I needed a lawyer. <laughs> and he said, um, and I had grown up around, you know, my dad was a meditator and my mom was a meditator too on some level. And um, it was modeled. Uh, one of the things I did this week in Taos is that I went to the Hanuman uh, uh, the Neem Karoli Baba ashram, the Hanuman temple in Taos, which was the sort of Hindu uh, temple that my father was a part of, that uh, I grew up going to the celebrations, the Bandaras, and just tripping on acid and having a great time. And, um, and, and so I knew about spirituality, I knew about meditation, and I saw it modeled, but it wasn't pushed. And there was very little pressure until I was 17, strung out, locked up, that my dad ever really said, you, you ready to meditate yet? Like, you know about this, but you've never really, you want to try it? Or, you know, like, this is how I can help you. I can give you these instructions. So his perspective was, don't push it. Wait for the right moment when your kid is desperate enough to fucking listen. And I think that that was his, his sort of technique. And when I asked him, uh, why didn't you like, cause I was kind of like, why didn't you send me to rehab? Like I, you know, you were like, just go hit the streets, go, you want to be a man, go be a man. Uh, you want to be an adult, get out of my house. I'm tired of your shit. Like, go, you know, it was sort of his like, go, go, you know? And I was like, great. Yes. Fuck school. I'm gone. And I, I really thought at 15, I was like, I got this. I'm, I'm done. I don't need an education. I'm going to go be a cook. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go do something. I thought at that time, I thought I'd work in restaurants and because uh, I had some experience working in restaurants. And I thought like, I'm just going to go do that. And that's it. I don't need to go to school. And then I got so strung out and suffered so much. And then he used that moment to say, are you willing? You know, are you suffering enough? Are you willing? Oh, and so he said, when I confronted him, said, why didn't you, you know, why'd you do that? He said, I thought, I thought you were leaving anyways. I was pretty sure that no matter what I said, you were gone. So, and I think, you know, looking back, I was like, yeah, you're right. I was on my way out for sure. And I could have been a 15-year-old runaway, or I could have, you know, gone with his blessing. He said, I figured it was better to go with my blessing so that you would stay in contact with me, so that if and when you were ready or you needed some help, I could be a resource. I said, what a fucking risk that was. Like, he's like, it worked out pretty good, didn't it? Like, all kind of proud of himself. <laughs> he's like, look at you, you're sober, you're a meditation teacher now. Like, I did a great job just sending you off to, to jail. Parenting's fucking hard. Um... You know, my, my daughter's 13 this year and I can, it's coming. I know it's coming. 
my own sense, my, I don't push meditation on my children. I model it. They're around here. They're around my retreats. When I got divorced a few years ago, my daughter was, I think, eight years old. And uh, she was feeling anxiety about, you know, being in a different house away from mom. And um, I said, you want to do some meditation? And she said, yeah, because she'd grown up around it. And I give her some guided meditations to help her fall asleep. And then at one point she said, dad, you have those um, DVDs or CDs of your talks, right? Your lectures and sort of book on tape thing, guided meditations that I had that she'd seen on the bookshelf. She said, how about if I just listen to that when I'm going to bed rather than you having to kind of give me the guide? And it was this, her own wisdom of this sort of like individuation. She was like, cool, I want this, uh, but also I don't want you to have to do it. So I'll just listen to it. And she did that not for very long, for a few months around the divorce. And she knew that that was like, this is a self-soothing technique that she could bring into her life. And she doesn't do it anymore. And recently um, I asked her, she's experiencing some teenage stress and, you know, social dynamics and popularity, all of that puberty suffering that we've all gone through. And I said, you wanna do some mindfulness? She said, you know, maybe dad, but not with you. <laughs> and I really, you know, like I get it, you know, like often as the parent, we're the wrong person to carry the message to our child. Um, I spent a long time doing rites of passage groups for other people's kids, where I would take teenagers through, teach them some meditation, go off, do a vision quest and, you know, bring, you know, teenagers through this rite of passage, give them some tools that, um, and for a long time I was doing it for parents of the San Francisco Zen Center. It was like the Abbott and all of these Zen parents that whose kids were like, fuck Zen. That's what my parents are into. And so their parents were like, let's get that tattooed guy. Maybe he can get to our kids in a way that we can't. <laughs> It worked for a couple of them. A couple of them had some, you know, powerful uh, experiences and ended up becoming meditators. And a couple of them were like, no, 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 fuck them. <laughs> for, for real, fuck them. So just some reflections. I don't, I'm just some reflections for you. I hope that was helpful. Yeah. Maybe that's enough for tonight. I see one more hand. I'll take one last question online and then we'll be done. Sonia, go ahead. Hey, thanks. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Um, this uh, is, is a question more pertaining to recovery. Um, I, I've been in 12 steps for many years and it really did change my life. Um, but sometimes I, I, I often struggle with consistently being able to access a higher power. Um, I was wondering if, because I know that you sort of have like a school of recovery or a, 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 an organization, um, is, the, is there an alternative through Buddhism where the higher power isn't such a thing that everything cruxes on, um, as in the 12 steps, it's sort of everything. Yeah. Is there an alternative through yeah. this? Yeah. Um, Buddhism is a great alternative. Uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are a non-theistic, and there's no higher power in, in Buddhism. 
Um, it's a humanist psychology about how we train our own minds to become more wise and compassionate and to practice, practice renunciation and to not indulge in intoxicants. And the recovery program is called Refuge Recovery that uses Buddhism as the basis for awakening and for healing and recovering. Um, and so, you know, go come, come to some refuge meetings, Sonia, and check it out. And you'll see that most, uh, most of the principles of the 12 steps are there in refuge recovery, um, but that it were talked about in a different way than an external higher power, more of like an internal uh, source rather than an external source. Um, the one thing that I'll say about that to anybody who uh, you know, this, this is not a, you know, I think probably three quarters of the people here are in recovery. Uh, I'd imagine something like that. Um, uh, Dr. Bob, the co-founder of the you know, 12 steps, the creator of the 12 steps at one point, I think in the 1940s, um, said that he felt that Buddhism's four noble truths and eightfold path would be a more than sufficient replacement for the Judeo-Christian 12 steps. He said that this four truths, eightfold path for all of us that don't uh, have a theistic understanding um, would be a really appropriate non-theistic way to recover from alcoholism and addiction. So uh, any of your 12-step friends that give you shit about your leaning towards Buddhism, let them know that the co-founder thought it was a good idea. Hope that's helpful. RefugeRecovery.org. You can find meetings and join us at some online meetings or in-person meetings, depending where you live. Okay. So just reflecting a little bit on your meditation tonight, reflecting on the questions and answers, the perspectives that were shared. And to remember that all of this is for your, it's an offering for you to contemplate. Some of what's said uh, perhaps resonates as true for you. Some maybe you have some questions about, some maybe you disagree with. And knowing that all of that sort of internal uh, investigation is what we're doing here together. And this like against the stream Buddhism in general, in my sense is not like you should believe this, but it's like more, it's more of an offering of like, think about it this way. Does it make sense to you? Um, and then find out what truly makes sense to you and follow that, follow your own direct experience more than what any teachers are saying or religions are saying, um, but what's your direct experience? and offering the merit from our practice tonight outward in all directions. May each one of us heal what can be healed, forgive what can be forgiven, and awaken to all that can be awakened to. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you for your attention and practice. And a class is done by donation. Um, there's a bowl out front for donations online. You can do uh, donations through Venmo or um, PayPal. Please consider becoming a member. Uh, you know, you're a member if you say you're a member. Uh, and you're a member by just showing up. And so really consider showing up. And, and if you can financially support our nonprofit and help us pay the rent on this space, 
become a, a monthly donor. There's a link here. If you want to become a monthly donor, um, you go to the website and you say, I want to give this much money every month so that I can support against the streams activities. So please consider doing that. Thank you for your generosity and um, see you next Monday. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.